praise God because we've been praying for David Wellenstein for a long time now, battling with cancer and trying to figure out what to do. Well, he's been in Boston, he's received a new treatment, and his body has received it. It's amazing, and uh, he's still in Boston. They're still monitoring him, seeing how it will continue to take to him. But where things are right now, it's extremely encouraging, and we just want to praise God for that. Um, So thank you for your prayers. Continue praying. There's still a road ahead. And as I understand, Gene has been uh, feeling fairly bored in the hotel room waiting for uh, David to be released. So anyway, be praying for them. You know, that that song that we just sang is so powerful. God is stronger. Christ is stronger. And Christ is stronger particularly than our unbelief, our blindness. Today we're talking about seeing. And when I come up here on a Sunday morning, when I am preaching, when I all of my preparation... I don't do any of that so that you are excited, so that I come across as exciting. I'm not doing this so I can be a dynamic speaker. I don't care if you think that this has been dynamic. What I want is for you to see and savor our Savior. I want the darkness to be overwhelmed by the light of Christ. If you have seen Christ, if he is your Savior, then I want you to to love that, to be sparked again by the joy of your salvation. I'm not doing this to tantalize you. We're trying to see. We're trying to love what we see. This is supernatural work that I am unable to do. So God is, I want God to be doing it in me and through me. This is beyond human ability. But that's what I'm hoping will happen every Sunday morning. That's why I spend time praying and and writing these sermons so that we will love our Savior. And let's just pray for that right now. God, would you do what is humanly impossible right now and open our eyes to see I pray we would again fall in love with who you are and what you have done. That you have made yourself a man. You have touched our eyes and opened them to the reality of your godness and your goodness. Thank you for the light. And wash us again in it this morning. In Christ's name, I pray and hope. Amen. So today in Mark, we come to this massive shift in the book. Everything changes now in the book of Mark. Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, and with this confession, the whole book pivots the ministry of Jesus is transforming into something deeper, something more personal, more sacrificial, more penetrating to the heart. Peter's confession is the continental divide, 
that separates the book into two halves. The first half of the book, Jesus is consistently commanding people to silence. The second half of the book, after the transfiguration, he doesn't command anybody to silence anymore. That's done. In the first half of the book, he uses the phrase, I tell you the truth, twice. Second half of the book, 12 times. We go from looking at Jesus' works and his authority through his miracles to Jesus' teaching. We hardly got any of his teaching in the first half. Now we're going to see his teaching in full measure. And most importantly, Jesus is no longer wandering around Galilee, seemingly aimlessly transecting the lake here and there, not really knowing where he's going or why he's going there. But that changes now. Now he is on the way. You will see it again and again. He is on the way or while on the way. He is on the way to Jerusalem. He is on the way into the heart of Judaism. He is on the way to the cross from this point forward. So with this distinct shift from the the works of Jesus to the heart of Jesus, I want you to consider this question. Who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Let's read our passage. It's Mark 8, verses 22 through 30. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a man, a blind man, and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees. Walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Let's pray one more time. God, these words that we have read, use them to penetrate each one of our hearts, even my heart as I speak. Penetrate our hearts with this. Keep Keep us from error and, and open us to the immense beauty of what you have hidden here for us to see, to find. In Christ's name, our Messiah and Savior, we pray. Amen. Okay, so Jesus has left the antagonistic, defiant, disbelieving Pharisees back in the region of Dalmanutha. And it's important to keep that in our minds, that Jesus has left these Pharisees, because that encounter, which is saturated with unbelief, defiant, willing unbelief, is something that becomes very important to our passage today. You see, they, they are blind. Those Pharisees are blind. They are in darkness. Last time we saw the, the disciples, last week when Rob preached, you saw that the disciples also were blind. But unlike the disciples, 
The Pharisees are willingly blind. They're choosing their blindness. They're wanting their blindness. They're, they're grasping onto it with their lies, it seems. They want their blindness. So Mark is placing the blindness of the Pharisees and the disciples right next to this passage of a blind man receiving sight, of a confession to draw a contrast. When we have a contrast, it makes the properties of each thing pop, explode with more meaning. Blindness and the Pharisees and sight that's being bestowed by Jesus. So Jesus left them in their blindness and their self-loving darkness and he sailed across the lake to Bethsaida. So bring that map up. They were in the region of Dalmanutha, which is in this area right here. And they sail up to Bethsaida on the way to Caesarea Philippi which is 25 miles north up here. So, um, they're on the way to Caesarea Philippi, and it's not a stop that they're doing, in, or it's not a, a ministry visit that they're doing in Bethsaida. They're on the way. They're just passing through, but as they pass through, they are perhaps accosted by this small group of people, and it doesn't seem like it's a crowd. You know, the crowds are always there waiting to greet Jesus and, and have him do all the things they want him to do, but this time it's a smaller group of people, it would seem, and They're very insistent. They are begging, even. They are begging that Jesus will heal this blind man. Perhaps a friend, perhaps a family member. Look at verse 23 again. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? So we've got this blind man. Now once again, as we saw two weeks ago, two weeks ago, Jesus takes the man and he removes him from the crowd or from the possibility of a crowd in this context. And there's two reasons that he's moving him away, I believe, from the crowd, from the village. The first is that Jesus is dignifying this man, again, as a unique individual. He's not a project that needs to be fixed. He's not just a problem that needs to be solved. This man is a human, a unique individual with distinct needs, a man who has experienced darkness for a long time, and he is desperate for the touch of Jesus. So he's dignifying him as a man, as a human. And the second reason I believe that Jesus is pulling him aside is because these crowds have only met Jesus with unbelief. All they want from Jesus is to get a healing. They want Jesus to do the things they want him to do. Unbelief, unbelief, unbelief from the Pharisees, from the crowds, even from the disciples. And Jesus wants to express his compassion, his love for the people through healing. And he's been doing it consistently despite their unbelief. He wants to do that, but he does not want to be seen or perceived as a spectacle. Jesus did not come to be merely a miracle worker, a worker of healings. He's not a spectacle. Yes, Jesus is a healer. Yes, Jesus does work miracles and he is a teacher. He is the greatest prophet that ever existed, but he is not just any one of those things. He is more. To seek Jesus 
just to be your own personal miracle worker is to completely misunderstand Jesus, is to miss who he is, and is to live in the darkness of unbelief. So seeking Jesus for personal gain is not seeking Jesus in faith. If you're seeking Jesus for healings, alone, you are not seeking Jesus in faith. I say yes, seek Jesus when you have needs. Yes, seek Jesus when you need a healing because he is able to do it. But are these the only reasons that you're seeking Jesus? Are you just looking for him to carry you through the tough times? When things are good, you're all right. You've got it. Your prayer life goes away. Your Bible reading disappears. Ask yourself this question. Do you love Jesus for who he is? Or do you love Jesus because of how he makes you feel? Do you love Jesus for who he is? Or do you love Jesus because of how he makes you feel? Well, Jesus lays his hands on this man. A quick note about the spit. I have no idea why that happens. (laughs) That is just weird. Now, there was this belief back in Greek times that, that saliva had healing properties, and so sometimes they would make a, a mixture with spit in it and, and say it was a healing remedy. Maybe like some people say essential oils are right now. Sorry. Um, sorry. <laughs> I'll be hearing about that one later. Um, <laughs> but so there could be something in that, but really I, I don't know and nobody knows why Jesus is spitting in this man's eyes. It's weird. Um, but whatever the reason, it is clear that Jesus' contact with the man is close. It's, it's, it's even intimate. You can got, not get any closer than touch, and Jesus touches this man. And then something very peculiar happens. Jesus asks the man if he sees anything. Nowhere else is there a question like this. Nowhere else in the Bible. Every other time that Jesus heals, it's with authority. And with a word or a touch, he's healed and it's done. Or the person is healed. No hesitation, no wondering if it worked. Just the power of Christ accomplishing the supernatural work. But Jesus is doing something completely different here. Something that we cannot miss. Look back at verse 21 in in chapter 8. Verse 21, it comes at the end of two stories about unbelief. The unbelief of the Pharisees and the unbelief of the disciples. Spiritual blindness. And then in verse 21, Jesus asks the disciples this question. Do you not yet understand? That could have been. And very well means the same thing. Do you see anything? It is the same question. Do you not yet see? Jesus has given the disciples everything that they need to see. Everything that they need to see. And they still do not see. And very soon he's going to ask the question to them. Do you see anything? Jesus' touch is effective for the blind man because he is truly seeing. Nothing that this man has done has allowed himself to see. 
There's no mention of his faith or anything. Nothing that he has done has brought the light into his eyes. Christ's touch and he sees. Christ has done it all. But even though he is seeing, Christ's work is not finished because the healing is not complete. Let's look at verses 24 and 25. And he looked up, the blind man, and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on the eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. This man can see but he cannot see clearly. So light is streaming into his eyes. There are colors, there are shapes, there's depth, things he has never experienced before, or at least not for a long, long time. So he is truly seeing, but he is not seeing fully. Truly seeing, but not seeing fully. People look like trees walking around. This is the only miracle in the four Gospels that happens in stages. The only one. So this does not mean in any way that Jesus' first attempt was unsuccessful, so he has to give it another go. Not at all. Jesus is using this physical healing to show us a spiritual reality. So he's trying to give us sight through this healing. Sight is a process of experiential truth, of experiential knowledge, Or perhaps more pointedly, listen, revelation is only understood through experience. Revelation of reality, of who God is, of who Christ is, of who you are, is only understood in your heart, in the depth of who you are, in your inner being, through experience, through experiential knowledge. A relationship with Christ is this process where he draws you in and he allows you to experience his godness, his goodness, himself as a person. Each time you're understanding, your sight is expanded, it becomes more clear. He does not simply dictate his will to you and it is so. But through relationship, he is drawing you in to greater and greater reality, greater and greater truth through experiencing him. So whether we have spiritual eyes that see dimly or see clearly, we have not brought ourselves there. It is Christ's continued touch on our lives, on our eyes, that allows us to see You know, there's the, I wasn't going to do it, but I have this parentheses. (laughs) I think truth is a little bit different than than society tells us. Because people want to tell us that if we know something, we have to know it exhaustively. If you want to speak about something and call it truth, then you have to know it exhaustively. It's so naive. Because truth is true from the very earliest understanding of it to the very deepest most profound understanding of it and at no time in that process is that truth any less true so at five years old I knew that Jesus loves me but now I know so much more profoundly what that means I know that God is glorified through pain and suffering and praise and all of that 
is an act of love towards me and you. I know that his death on the cross, his pro- the propitiation of my sins, the atonement for my sins is an act of love for me. You know, and there are so many other realities and deep, rich doctrines of grace that tell me about his love for me. So my, yes, I know that Jesus loves me and I know it now just as much as I did then, but it's even richer and more deep and more full. I can see more clearly now. And truth is like the spiral and we're continually spiraling inward into the depth of it for all eternity for God is infinite. So that's, that's truth. That, that's the experience of truth that he is walking us into, spiraling in to the depth of the infinite God. Okay. In a very small way, this healing is a physical allegory. The healing of this man is showing us that the process of sight, the process of understanding is an experience with Christ. Jesus touches him again, and he receives full sight. Once again, Jesus commands a person healed to silence. Look at verse 26. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Well, this time in particular, as I've said before, Jesus does not want the crowds to to know about this healing because they're just coming for unbelief. He doesn't want another crowd that's just there to receive miracles. They don't understand his purpose or his person. So he's not looking to excite that any longer. Miracles at this point only continue to excite the notions of who they want him to be. And we saw that over and over and over again as we've been walking through Mark. So Jesus then leaves Bethsaida, and he starts heading the 25 miles north on the Roman road to Caesarea Philippi. You'll see it on the map again. Caesarea Philippi, way up north, 25 miles from the Sea of Galilee. So on the way, it's likely his second time through the Gentile city. If you remember, he did this big tour through um, Gentile territories before. He went to Tyre and Sidon up here and then back down through Caesarea Philippi and then over through Bethsaida to Decapolis. Then he's gone from there to the Dalmanutha to Bethsaida and then back up to Caesarea Philippi. So it seems like he's all over the place. Um, But again, Caesarea Philippi is a Gentile territory. So he's just passing through the Jewish territory up towards the Gentiles again. And on the way, something remarkable happens. It's meant to parallel what we just read about the blind man receiving sight. These two stories are parallel stories. And paralleling paralleling in a very powerful way. Six verses ago, Jesus asked the disciples, Do you not yet see? Now they will begin to see. Now light will start streaming in. But like the blind man, it's not very clear at first. So on the way, this phrase, we're going to see it, like I said, over and over and again, nine more times in the next next four chapters. Each time, the disciples are taking a physical, a spiritual step closer to Jerusalem, closer to what awaits in Jerusalem, the cross, Every step closer, Jesus is revealing more and more of himself. It's like he's touching their eyes again and again. See, see. 
these greater revelations, every time Christ is pushing the issue of faith, driving them in to what faith is, more and more directly, his actions, his teachings, his questions are demanding that people make a personal decision about who he is. No longer can you sit on the sidelines and watch. If you're going to believe, you've got to enter into it. And next week we'll see, and right after our passage today, Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to take up your cross. If you want to follow me, you need to die. Jesus asks the disciples this question. Who do people say that I am? He doesn't start by asking the real question, the question we all know that he wants to ask, who do you think I am? But who do others say that I am? He wants to know what the disciples heard or, or what others are saying. So look at verse 28. He told them, they told him, John the Baptist, the others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But the answer that the disciples give is no surprise to Jesus at all. He knows exactly what people are saying about him. King Herod had said the exact same things. Let's look at it. Mark 6, verses 14 and 15. Exact same. King Herod heard of it, Jesus' miracles, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said he is Elijah. Others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. Same thing, right? Jesus knows what people are saying about him, he's, but, but he's doing something here. He's preparing the disciples for this monumental, continental dividing question that's coming. It's much easier to talk about other people's thoughts than your own, isn't it? Much easier to talk about what the latest polls say or what the facts say rather than what do you think? So he's easing them into this harder question in one sense. In the other sense, he's doing something that's way more psychologically deep. So people, they've made all of these judgments about Jesus. And, and they're really, they're ranging from sympathetic to just outright hostile. So he's asking this question in two stages. And as he's doing it, he's forcing the disciples to separate themselves from popular opinion. And risk a personal confession. Faith can never be a democratic vote. Faith doesn't come because that's what everybody is saying. No, a confession of faith is risky, it's a personal decision, and it's something that very likely is going to alienate you from what popular society deems favorable. He's not asking them to make a judgment about who he is. He's asking them to make a personal confession that's born out of faith because they've seen him and witnessed him. Or to make that stance and reject him. So line of questioning is much like this in our day. And if you get on YouTube and you type this in, you'll find loads of videos. What if you went on the streets and asked random people, what do you think of Jesus? You're going to hear a couple answers probably override the rest. He was a great teacher. He was the greatest moral example that ever lived. Things like that. Things that require no faith. People believe these things. It's common perception. You and I can recite those facts, and it has no bearing on our lives. 
The people on the streets are reciting those facts and has no bearing on their lives. But what happens if I ask you, you, who do you say Jesus is? Not who do they say Jesus is. Who do you say Jesus is? At that moment, you're forced to make a confession of personal faith. If you have said that Jesus is the greatest moral example that has ever lived, well then, are you living by that great moral example that you think is the greatest ever? If you think he is the greatest teacher ever, then are you living by the teachings which he, pro- which he proclaimed? If you, if you are thinking he is more than that, are you living in that way? Or do you actually not believe any of those things at all and you just want to live how you want to live? It's forcing, the question is forcing you to make a personal confession of who you think Jesus is, of what your faith is, or what you put your faith in. It's what he's doing with the disciples here. Asking his disciples to make a confession about his divine authority, which they have seen, they have witnessed, they have experienced. They have seen Jesus exercise authority over demons and over the weather, calming a storm. They have seen him make what was unclean clean, they have, heard all, they have seen him heal all kinds of sicknesses. They have seen him walking on water. They have even seen him, which is more amazing than any of the rest, they have even seen him forgive somebody's sins. They have witnessed the divine authority in the most profound way. And just a few verses earlier, they say this. Or... or They could not see who Jesus is, and so Jesus responds in Mark 8, verses 17 through 19, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? Jesus had just fed 4,000 people out of a couple loaves and a few fish. Do you not remember? You're in this boat complaining about not having food. They were blind just a few days earlier. So Jesus' question is like he's laying his hands on the blind man's eyes. The disciples are being required to make a stance. And he's essentially asking them with his question, he's essentially asking him, just like he asked the blind man, do you see anything? When he says, who do you think I am? He's asking them, do you see anything? And then, miraculously, by the power of God, light comes streaming in and faith appears. And Peter's confession is a confession of truth and a confession of faith. His confession is a confession of sight. Verse 29 And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. Christ has brought Peter from blindness, from darkness, to sight. Jesus, he sees Jesus as the long-awaited Christ, the Messiah, sent from the Father. But Peter is very much like the man who is blind. He's truly seeing, but he's not seeing clearly yet. 
He sees, but he does not see clearly. clearly. Jesus knows that Jesus is, or sorry, Peter knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but his slight is, is clouded by the common perceptions of the day. So he doesn't understand, or he, he understands Jesus as the Messiah, as one who will throw off Rome, who will be a military leader. That's the common perception, and that's, that's clouding what Peter is saying right here. He does not yet know the Messiah as the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah. Most profoundly, and most importantly, he does not see Jesus as the Son of God, or if he does, it's so minuscule. Jesus as the Son of God is the most profound understanding, the greatest reality of who he is. And so listen to how Jesus is defined by those that truly saw Christ, that truly saw Jesus. Mark 1.1, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is writing this after Jesus' whole life. Mark 1.11, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. God speaking about his Son. Mark 1.24, spoken by a man possessed with a demon. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Mark 5.7, spoken by the chain-breaking legion of demons that possessed a man. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? You see, over and over again, when people truly know Jesus, He is the Son of God. When Jesus is truly known, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, he is the Savior, but he is not fully known. He, full faith in him cannot be realized until he is known as the Son of God. Because only God can do the things that we have talked about today. Only God can walk in water. Only God can make what is unclean clean. Only God can forgive sins. Love for Jesus can only be born, and this is what is so amazing. Love for Jesus can only be born when you realize that God became man. And he suffered, and he died, and he was tortured and put on a cross, killed to glorify the Father, And to make a way for us to know him, to have relationship with him, to make peace between us and the Father. So when we say Jesus is the Son of God, we have that in perspective. And and the truth of reality, the underpinnings of the universe are made known to us. Jesus can only be known as the Son of God in its fullness after the spikes are driven through his hands and the spear is thrust into his side. And so when we see the most true, the most full confession of who he is, the first full confession of faith in the Bible comes while Jesus is hanging on the cross out of the lips of a Gentile Roman centurion. Truly, This was the Son of God. So although Peter's confession is a confession of faith, it's just the beginning. The work is not yet complete. 
So when Jesus commands Peter and the disciples to silence, I believe that he's doing two things. The first is that he's acknowledging they are right, that Peter is correct. He is the Messiah. He's indirectly acknowledging that. But because Peter's faith is not yet full, he does not want Peter's confession to feed this Messiah frenzy that the Jews are all caught up in. Remember, the feeding of the 5,000. After that happened, the, the huge crowd wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. So Jesus doesn't want this confession, which is true, to feed into that frenzy in the disciples or anyone else. He has not come to overthrow the Romans. He does not want this fervor to spread. So Jesus commands them to silence. He has more work to do with the disciples. He's going to touch their eyes, and he's going to touch them again and again and again until they see clearly, until they have full understanding. Peter's applied the right title, Messiah. And now he's going to show them what Messiah really means in the very next passage. And the one after that, he's going to show them exactly what Messiah means. Peter will try to rebuke him. But Jesus is insistent. He commands Peter to silence so he can build off of this elementary understanding. He will show them that the Messiah will kneel down and wash their feet rather than raise a sword and take an empire. His life will be about humble sacrifice rather than victorious conquest. And he will show them that the Messiah has not come to kill his enemies, but to be killed for his enemies. Immediately following this passage, we're going to get into this. He will instruct them that being the Messiah is nothing like they are perceiving in this moment. It means suffering and dying. It means that discipleship, that faith means participating in that same suffering and dying. And then Christ will show them who he really is and he, before their very eyes, will be transfigured and glorified and a voice will come from heaven once again saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Each one a touch to their eyes, bringing greater sight and bringing greater clarity, expanding their faith. From here on out, the book of Mark will take us, and Jesus will take us, on the way of suffering and rejection. The journey of faith is the road to the cross, and its reward beyond the cross is eternal life with Christ. So who do you say Jesus is. Who is he to you? Is he a good example and a teacher? Has he merely come to show you a better way to live? Is he merely a, a miracle worker? Has he come to, show, to, to heal you? Has he come to carry you through the tough times and make your lives a little bit more comfortable? Or is Jesus the Son of God? Has he created you? Does he have a say over your life? Over, does he hold your future and your past, your present? Is he the only one that can give you life? Is he the only one that can satisfy a human soul? His person, relationship with him. Is his will more important than yours? 
Who do you say Jesus is? And if you say Jesus is your Savior, the Son of God, and you know this reality, if you confess this reality, then likely and hopefully you'll want to share that news. But when you're giving your testimony, when you're sharing the gospel, what is it that you're trying to do? Are you trying to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt? Presenting all of the facts, arguing somebody into the kingdom? Or are you trying to get people to ask the question, who is Jesus to you? Show them this relationship. Show them this Jesus that touches the eyes again and again and again, who will walk with you through life, who, li- who is actually a person and wants to have a relationship, wants to be a friend. Are you trying to show that or are you trying to prove something? Look how the miracles proved to the Pharisees that Jesus was the Son of God. Look how his relationship brought the disciples from blindness to light. Who is Jesus to you? And how will you ask others that question? Let's pray. We cannot see without your touch. I ask that you would touch our eyes. Whether we see, however we see, things are still blurry. Touch our eyes again. Let us see more clearly. Let us savor what we see and love it. Like a blind man loves the light. It is a wonder that You don't try to prove your existence to us, but you invite us in through a relationship with Christ. Give us the sight every day of our lives to walk in that relationship. I thank you so much for humbling yourself, Christ, and becoming a man that we might see that what God God's goodness and love expressed in human form is through suffering and sacrifice. And we love it. We love it. We pray this all in your beautiful name and trusting, putting our faith in that name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God. Amen.